back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Shaughnessy, a co-founder at Delphi Digital, where we're five full-time analysts focused on institutional crypto research. If you aren't a subscriber, you're missing out, so visit the site while you're listening. One quick housekeeping item. This podcast is strictly informational and educational and is not investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any tokens or securities or to make any financial decisions. I may personally own tokens that are mentioned on the podcast. And you can view the show notes for our full disclosures. With that, let's jump in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Chain Reaction Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Dan Zoller. Dan's a partner at Vision Hill Group, a full-service digital asset management and solutions firm with a mission to lead investors into the future of digital assets. As a response to Dan's recent distributed consensus research, Dan and I felt there's a really important role to play in simplifying complex subjects for many in the crypto community. Therefore, I'm excited to announce this is the first of what will become a multi-part series on simplifying the complexity of crypto. In this episode, we'll cover distributed consensus, and in future episodes, we'll cover many other complex subjects, potentially things like the current state of scalability across layer one and layer two, interoperability, and more. If you're listening to this podcast and have a particular complex topic area, in crypto that you would like to cover, I encourage you to reach out to us with that topic so we can look into it in future episodes. Lastly, I must disclose that all topics discussed in this episode are strictly informational and educational and should not be taken in any way as an investment advice now or in the future. Now turning to Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. What an intro. Excited to be here and thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So before we get into the meat of the episode, why don't you kick us off with a brief background of yourself and what you're working on at Vision Hill? Sure. So I spent a number of years in traditional finance before transitioning to crypto full-time. My early years were focused primarily on the analytical side, particularly valuing and advising investors on structured products and other capital structure solutions. So they covered things like credit derivatives, mortgage servicing rights, distressed debt, and asset-backed securities and other forms of structured products. And then I transitioned to investing, particularly focusing on venture capital and private equity investing on behalf of Citigroup's pension fund. And at the same time I was at Citi, the digital asset industry continued to advance substantially. And it got to a point where I just knew that I had to be in this space full time. So that's when I joined Vision Hill and decided to package my analyst and investing skill sets together. And uh, Vision Hill was founded by my partner, Scott Army. And uh, as you covered before, Vision Hill Group is a full-service digital asset management and solutions firm. We have three main divisions. We have asset management, we have research, and we have advisory and consulting for allocators, managers, and projects. And we are very focused on leading investors into the future of digital assets, whether for investment, data, education, or all of those That's great. And thanks for sharing that background, Dan. So you recently published a long Twitter thread, which was excellent, and a blog post on distributed consensus. And I'd love to get into that with you here on this episode. So it appears the simplification of such a complex topic was very well received by the community. I loved it. Can I ask what inspired you to put that post forward? 
It's really quite simple. I was already doing heavy research on the subject, and a part of me just felt like I had to share my thoughts and findings with the community. There are so many smart people in the space that are working tirelessly to help it evolve and mature. And unfortunately, I feel like there are just times where things get extremely complicated that even the brightest minds that are moving the space forward can hit a temporary roadblock. So when you, when you think about it from a newcomer's perspective, how can you possibly catch up to the current state of affairs? And that's when I couldn't help but think to myself, if I were in a newcomer's shoes to catch up to the things that really matter in debates, there's just this huge learning curve that's overwhelming and potentially intimidating, uh, not to mention perhaps extraordinarily complex. And I, I simply worry it's discouraging. So uh, and, and another part of that challenge is this space is very tech heavy, but it has enough carryover from traditional finance where non-technical, but nonetheless incredibly bright finance-oriented people are attracted to start poking around. So that just adds to this challenge when they realize without a sim- without a somewhat technical understanding of these emerging technologies, they can only get so far with the learning curves. And those learning curves may potentially plateau because things are either too complex or they simply don't feel encouraged enough to invest the time to develop the understanding they need to have. So my goal was really twofold. On one hand, to help unlock further productivity for so many leaders in the space with material that I think can be a helpful contribution um, because it can serve the need for specific weapons points or more generally just create an ease of access to what I believe was good information. And on the other hand, to also help those non-technical newcomers get caught up quicker and have a way that's easier for them to enhance their understanding of important topics. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely what inspired me to collaborate with you on this series, uh, because just so many areas are so complex, and I feel like you have to be an expert um, in all of them. So before we jump in, like, who would you say is our intended audience? Is it that finance crew that you mentioned earlier? or is this more for investors? What are you thinking here? I mean, it's a podcast time. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I certainly encourage audience members of all types, but it definitely sounds that the audiences are traditional, more non-technical folk here looking to deepen their understanding of the technical side. Uh, would you agree? Yes. Okay, that's awesome. So distributed consensus, you know, where do we begin? Can you summarize like what exactly distributed consensus means? Yeah, so I think to answer that, like what exactly is distributed consensus, I think we should even take a step back and ask ourselves what a blockchain even is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's a good idea. I think the simplest way to think of blockchains are databases akin akin to accounting ledgers, where you can't take anything out or reverse a prior transaction. You have to put a new one in as opposed to deleting it. Uh, But also, transactions are put into blocks, and blocks are linked together in a chain format. And these blockchains are special in that they're distributed, decentralized, and global, so there's no central server running them, and no one person has control over them. Exactly. So when you think about the contents of these blockchains or databases, there has to be a way to guarantee or 
rather to let people trust the contents of these blockchains and their levels of security, even if none of these people know the identities of the others all over the world who may have access to these blockchains or that may potentially be trying to manipulate the contents of these blockchains. So uh, that process of creating a way to let people trust the contents and the security of these blockchains is, is what I would say is meant by distributed consensus. That's helpful. And given you've already published your work on distributed consensus on Twitter and Medium, could you summarize like your own key findings and takeaways that you found after going through all of this work? Of course. I think first and foremost, it's important to emphasize that we can often surprise ourselves with what we can accomplish if we set our minds to something. Prior to transitioning to crypto full time, um, I will be very clear, I had virtually no technical understanding of technology, computer science, cryptography, or even distributed systems, nothing. So I've self-taught myself a lot of the technology to get to this point. And do I have a perfect understanding? Absolutely not. Am I an expert? Of course not. But to keep the space evolving, we need to keep evolving as students. That's what I believe. So to any listeners seeking to broaden their knowledge, it can absolutely be done. Um, I think that's the first key takeaway. The, The learning curve should not be as intimidating as it is. And I think there are fantastic materials out there. Uh, Preeti Kasareddy of Tree Story, Kyle Samani of Multicoin Capital, Jason Choi of Spartan Capital, to name a few. These folks have curated and distributed fantastic work on this technical topic. And uh, newcomers should, and, and even existing uh, industry veterans should use the open source ethos of the community to their advantage. So uh, that's the first thing I want to get out there. Um, Scrolling back to the research, to summarize the rest of the research, I would say the second key takeaway is distributed systems are all about trade-offs. There are many experiments in the space right now as it relates to tools employed by consensus mechanisms to achieve certain effects, and uh, the most popular ones are proof-of-work and proof-of-stake, which we can get into. Yeah, sure. So let's break those two down. Could you unpack proof-of-work and proof-of-stake before we continue? And if you could share your views on both, that would be helpful just to add some context. Absolutely. So proof of work was introduced with Bitcoin and simply is a function of two scarce contributions, energy and time. That's how I think of it. So it uses something called probabilistic finality. And that's not really scary. So what that means is all nodes, where nodes are simply just computers in a network that are keeping track of the current state of a ledger, all these nodes with probabilistic finality do not have to communicate to agree on a final state of affairs and then transition to the next state, but rather agree on the probability of the state being correct as determined by the node, which is, in Bitcoin's case, with the proof-of-work consensus mechanism, the miner that can solve the mathematical puzzle the fastest. Let's unpack one item there, Dan. What exactly does finality mean in your in your definition there? Yeah, so let me back up. So finality refers to the affirmation that all well-formed blocks will not be revoked once committed to a given blockchain. 
So there are different kinds of finality. There's a probabilistic finality, like in the case of Bitcoin that I just covered. And there's also absolute finality. And uh, there's also economic finality. That's awesome. So can you continue with proof of work and the notion of probabilistic finality? I think it makes sense to spend some time here. Sure. So with probabilistic finality, blocks are never truly finalized, but the probability that a transaction will not be reverted increases as the block that contains that given transaction sinks deeper into the chain. So miners in Bitcoin's case and other proof-of-work protocols are simply network participants that are running nodes and incurring extremely expensive electricity bills. And they're using um, ASICs, which are, it stands for application-specific integrated circuits. And uh, these ASICs give them extra compute power to be able to guess for a certain mathematical variable. This is called a nonce that solves the mathematical puzzle. And if you solve this mathematical puzzle with all this computationally intensive guessing work, you are able to be granted the right to put a new block onto a chain and reward it um, for, for putting that new block on a chain. So uh, this is referred to as Nakamoto consensus. And all miners are nodes, but not all nodes are necessarily miners. I think it's important to clarify that. And so going back to proof of work and the notion of probabilistic finality, the electricity and the high compute power is, is representative of energy. It, it is costly to produce that so-called guessing power. And uh, the second variable, time, it's extremely time-intensive. So all energy and time, it, it's the two scarce resources, and they cannot be cloned or replicated. So as such, proof-of-work proponents argue that this enables extremely high security, and it's necessary for a network like Bitcoin that could potentially capture trillions of dollars in value. So um, again, the, the scarce contributions of energy and time are costly and time-intensive to try to revoke any historical transactions. Um, on the other hand, proof-of-stake proponents take a slightly different approach and primarily argue too much high security creates inefficiencies, as we've seen with all the scalability challenges in the space, and we'll potentially cover that in future episodes. So the question becomes, can we sacrifice a little security to undergo a transition from the so-called extremely secure state to what I would call secure enough. Yeah, that's great overviews of proof of work and proof of stake, Dan, with finality. So let's continue with the later part. You just mentioned proof of stake. What exactly do you mean by extremely secure versus secure enough? I personally believe security is a spectrum. And just as too much working capital can be inefficient for a company in the traditional finance world, because it means that the amount of cash available within the company is much more than what is actually needed for operations. In, in the case of information networks and digital asset networks, too much security, I think, can be inefficient as well. So what I'm referring to is what is the right optimization of security that can still enable high-value creation, high-value capture? That makes a lot of sense. So can you continue with what you're getting at with proof-of-stake specifically? Yes. Yeah, so if we look at proof-of-stake from the lens of can we make a trade-off to perhaps sacrifice just a little bit of security 
but not too much because we still need a highly secure trust minimized system and gain more efficiency in that process in terms of performance. What would that look like? And so proof of stake proponents argue that there's another scarce contribution captured in proof of stake designs that can successfully enable this trade-off, which is the opportunity cost of capital. So traditional finance folks know the opportunity cost of capital as a foundation of financial theory. And uh, in the case of proof of stake, rather than spending all this money on high electricity bills to have greater computational power, which is hash power, in proof of stake, the locked up or, or staked capital is subjected to the opportunity cost of investing it elsewhere. So that's a common full circle back to the consensus trade-offs between proof of work and proof of stake. I think what we're ultimately exploring here is where can that line be drawn between extremely, extremely secure and secure enough. And that's really what my research was focused on. Can What I was asking myself is, can modern-day proof-of-stake innovation be secure enough to still enable that high-value creation, high-value capture that I mentioned earlier? And so the approach I took to creating a framework to answer that question was to understand the most common attack vectors and the vulnerabilities proof-of-stake systems may experience that potentially proof-of-work solves, but what solutions can proof-of-stake networks implement to successfully combat those attack vectors to make them secure enough. So uh, for any listeners interested in going deeper on that topic, I encourage you to read the research. Um, the, the blog post and the Twitter thread really highlight all those different attack vectors. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll include those resources in the show notes, and I love the comparison there to working capital. So one last question on, that we just covered does proof-of-stake also use probabilistic finality that you described earlier? So every network is different, but many proof-of-stake protocols tend to use either absolute finality or economic finality. Um, absolute finality, such as in the case of Tentament, refers to the type of finality in which a transaction is immediately considered finalized once it is considered in a block and added to a blockchain. So unlike probabilistic finality, where the probability that a block is going to approach finality uh, increases over time, in, in absolute finality, it, it is 100% on block, it is final. So uh, in that case, in, in absolute finality, a leader will propose a block and a sufficient fraction of a committee of validators, typically two-thirds, will have to approve the block for it to be committed. So um, in this state, reversing prior transactions cannot be done without breaking consensus because full nodes in the network will automatically reject such attempts at changing past history. And on the contrary, with economic finality, it, it becomes monetarily costly for a block to be reverted. Uh, what I mean by that is proof-of-stake systems that employ slashing mechanisms, which are simply financial penalties, um, make it exceedingly costly to harm finality. Um, and that, that's what is referred to as economic finality. That's super helpful, Dan. So yeah, I, I guess I think zooming out absolute finality is in kind of everybody has to agree to actually change something where economic finality is it just becomes too costly to revert a block. So 
you know, what are your views on proof of work versus proof of stake? Do you think that proof of stake networks can be secure enough for monetary use cases? I mean, that's the trillion dollar question, isn't it? Um, you know, I really, I really do believe we will see high performance, highly secure proof of stake networks in the near future. I think that there's just too many talented engineers and developers working on these technologies to not have a breakthrough. But I also think it remains to be seen exactly what assets are best enabled by what blockchains and what specific trade-offs optimize the security and value propositions for certain aspects for, for certain assets and spare applications. So uh, I think even just taking a step back, we need to remember that blockchains are essentially just storing data and not all data is monetary in nature. So if you look at things like identity, medical records, things like um, consumer behavior for marketing, uh, industry compensation data, and many other applications of data that can pave the way for tremendously valuable information networks, um, you, you realize that not, not all data is used for money. So I truly do believe we're going to continue living in a polychain, multi-coin world because disparate applications command different trade-offs for optimizing both security and value. Yeah, and that's excellent. And yeah, I would definitely agree with you there. I definitely think we're going to be continue to live in a polychain world. Uh, you know, not to steal that hedge fund name there, but and just my off the cuff comment is I definitely agree that security is a spectrum. You know, I think that real value that's financial in nature, whether it be your money or your real estate, should obviously have higher security guarantees than you know, your V Bucks on Fortnite or your Uber rewards credits, you know, on your phone. So I definitely think we're going to continue to see more experimentation around a lot of these topics um, as we move forward. So, Dan, this was an awesome, short and sweet episode covering all of the insane work that you've done. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to continuing the series with you on future topics. And if anybody has any questions regarding what was discussed, uh, where's the best way they can reach out to you? Always a pleasure, Tom. I just want to say thanks again for having me on and for helping distribute this uh, this so-called uh, simplification effort. Um, to answer your question, the best way to reach me is Twitter. My handle is just uh, at Dan Zeller. Awesome. And for everybody listening, Dan's Medium post and his tweet storm with his amazing research will be linked in the show notes below. So you can just scroll down on your screen or your computer and visit both of those. But Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, please share it on Twitter and LinkedIn and give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store. 